morning, New Walk. It's good to see you guys this morning. Now, let's get this out of the way right up front. Some of you just heard Pastor Gary, or Pastor Rusty, say that Pastor Gary's not here today, and the first reaction was, oh man, get the kids, let's head back home, just hang on. He's going to be back next week. Pastor Gary and Sean are away from us this weekend. We love our pastor, love his, love his wife, but they're getting a little time off this weekend. It gives us a little time that we can spend together, and he'll be back next week to continue in this influencer series that we're, we're in. Now, have you ever been in a situation that you, you, you weren't planning on being in, kind of got yourself into a sticky situation? Maybe you, uh, something as simple as you walked into the wrong class at school, open the door, walk in, and everybody's staring at you, and then you realize you're in the wrong place, so you got to back out. Or guys, I know I'm not the only one who's had this experience before. You walk into the, the bathroom, and you're looking around for the urinals, and then you realize, oh man, you're in the wrong bathroom. Maybe you walked into somebody's Zoom call, they were, they were talking and you're walking on camera behind them and by the chuckles, I'm sure that's happened to a, a few of you. Uh, we, we, we know these goofy things happen. Maybe you followed Rusty's directions to Israel and uh, <laughs> found yourself in a sticky situation there. How about if you were in a situation where you were in danger in a foreign land that's a sticky situation. Many years ago, there was five men who, who found themselves in that same kind of situation. They were told not to be there by the, the government officials. Their own families didn't want them to go there. Their own wives didn't know that or didn't want them to be there. And yet there they were. It was 1956, deep in the Amazon rainforest. These five men stood along the edge of a river. And one by one, Tribal warriors stepped out from the edge of the tree line into the clearing where they were. Each of them had a long spear in their hand. It was their favorite choice of weapon. Now these five men had no intention of harming these tribal warriors, but what do you do when you're faced with a situation like this? It's a life-threatening situation. They didn't have to be there. It was, it was their choice, but now their choice to be there could, could end it all. Imagine instantly if they think about their wives and their, their children back home, their parents, maybe thousands of miles away, completely unaware of the danger they were now in. What would influence these five men to be there against the warnings, against even basic common sense? Surely it must be something important. Maybe it was some hidden treasure. Maybe it was a, a business venture. Maybe it was a, a thrill-seeking adventure that they were on. Actually, they were there to deliver some very important news to the very tribal warriors who are now threatening to kill them. So, so far, Pastor Gary has led us through two weeks of this influencer series. In week one, we looked at Noah and looked at some of the traits of an influencer. In week two, last weekend, we talked about uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer and some of the, the um, influencers within our church and within our community. Well, today is week three of the Influencer Series, but before we dive in, I have a question for you. Why are you here? And I don't mean why are you sitting here in this auto, auditorium right now. Why are you here on earth? What is your purpose here on earth? Your answer to that question affects just about everything. 
Why don't we pray together and we'll dive in. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you so much for bringing each of us together in this room. And I pray, Father, that you would move me to the side, move every distraction to the side, and that you, Heavenly Father, would speak. Fill this room with your Holy Spirit. And we're listening. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew is one of the Gospels. It's one of the four books of the Bible that, that gives the life of Jesus, God's Son. And where we're picking up right now in chapter 10, Jesus had been um, ministering in different places, and there was many crowds of people that were following him. Large crowds would gather pretty much everywhere he went. But unlike what the crowds expected, he'd often say some, some difficult things. He'd say some things that would force a hard decision, and sometimes it would even drive the crowds away. And this is one of those moments. He had, he had gathered his 12 closest followers together, and he was giving them kind of a, a pep talk before he sent them out on a, on a mission for a season. And in this pep talk, he was, he was telling them some pretty some, some heavy things, a reality check in a sense, that they were possibly going to be persecuted or arrested. They might be chased out of towns, threatened, betrayed. And then near the in instructions that he's giving them, pick up at Matthew 10, 37, he says this. If you love your father and mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Ooh. If you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. These are some hard words that Jesus just spoke. They're hard words, but yet they're, they're powerful words. He's saying that love and devotion, even to those closest to your heart, your closest family does not, it, it cannot supersede following Jesus wholeheartedly. Jesus and his kingdom must come first. And then he mentions something about carrying your own cross. A cross was an execution device. The people of this day and age knew this very, very well. For us, it would be almost like an, an electric chair. You identify that with execution. Electric chair doesn't make a very nice necklace charm to wear around your, your neck, though. Jesus was telling them that following him was a serious decision, saying that it could cost you your life, and yet there was nothing greater. It almost sounds like a, a contradiction in a sense. But I think right here is one of those times when Jesus was giving us a glimpse into why you and I are here. We're not here for this life. We're not here for self. We are here for God, for his glory, his purpose, his agenda, his kingdom, his gospel. Gospel simply means good news about Jesus, his son, salvation through him. That's some, some powerful news. It's some life-changing news. And I know that I'm diving right into the, the heart, right, as, right out of the gate of this message, but I don't want you to miss this, why you and I are here for this ultra-important news, the good news about Jesus Christ. 
but who really lives like this? I mean, besides these, these 12 guys who are following Jesus, listening to him right now, who else really lets the gospel affect so greatly how they live their life? Here's the first thing I want you to, to catch today. We're talking about the influence of the gospel, and the gospel is powerful enough to let me show you. In 1947, a man named Nate Saint graduated from Wheaton College. It's a, it's a Christian college in Illinois. And his two greatest passions were aviation and missions. And he soon surrendered to the mission field in Ecuador. Now, Ecuador is a, uh, a country in South America, sits right on the equator, on the west coast of South America. The land encompasses uh, Amazon jungle, rainforest, uh, Andes mountains, a very diverse animal and bird population. But also, there were many indigenous tribes that had lived in that region for centuries. During the 1940s and 50s, Ecuador was, was quickly entering the industrialized world, but was facing a struggle with many of these primitive inhabitants. These tribal warriors were fighting back against the growth and the industry that had been quickly moving into their native territory. And yet for the modern world, it was a land of growth and opportunity. There was oil reserves and rubber plants there. This growth and development created the need for trained airplane pilots that could help transport, uh, transport equipment, food, medical supplies all throughout the region. So Nate Saint saw his skills as a pilot, not just as a way to make a living, but a way to provide the opportunity to take the gospel, the good news about Jesus to this country. So he and his new bride, Marge, packed up their things and began this adventure together. Two years later, one of Nate's college buddies, Jim Elliott, also graduated from Wheaton. He had the highest honor as a Greek major, and he'd often win uh, national speaking championships. He had a heart for missions as well. In 1952, he decided to pursue his passion by joining up with his buddy Nate in Ecuador. He invited two other friends to join him on this, Ed McCauley and Pete Fleming. And Ed declined in order to further pursue his education as a lawyer. But Pete, a former philosophy major, agreed and joined the men in Ecuador. Over the next few years, they worked to establish a school as well as begun teaching the Bible to some of the local people. And Jim was soon married to a girl from back home named Elizabeth, and Elizabeth packed up her things and joined them there on the, the mission field in Ecuador. Together, this team with their young families were reaching out to the people of Ecuador through medical assistance, teaching, delivering supplies to the local villages with Nate's airplane. And after a large storm came through and wiped out the airport, the men reached back out to Pete, who had previously declined. He had still been pursuing his plans to be a lawyer, but he agreed to come down to Ecuador to help them rebuild. And there was another local missionary already there named Roger Udarian. He joined forces with them, and these, together these five families formed a strong missionary team right there in Ecuador. Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian. One day as they're flying on a delivery mission, they, plant, they passed over Aka Indian Territory. And this is an area where no meaningful contact from the outside world had ever been made. You see, the Aka Indians were part of the Waodani people, known as some of the most violent 
and ruthless societies ever recorded in the modern world. The word Aka actually means naked savage. And the Aka people were broken into various warring factions, so ruthless that six out of every 10 adult men would be murdered at the hands of another Aka Indian from a surrounded village. They were closed off from the civilized world and they killed anyone who entered their territory. And to make matters even more complicated, as the 20th century civilization began to expand further and further, the Aka people began to be a bigger and bigger problem. As industry would push further and further into the jungle, the contact between the workers and the warriors would typically end up in death. Sometimes it was the warriors, sometimes it was the workers. The Aka people were now standing in the way of progress, and the Ecuador government was, was feeling mounting pressure to keep their inhabitants in line, so they decided to take action. One way or another, though, this step would likely end up in the extinction of the Aka people altogether. Now, these five missionaries had heard about the Aka people, but had never seen them before this particular flight. It was clear that no one had ever introduced these primitive people to the one true God, had ever told them about the gospel, about Jesus, God's son, the Savior. And as they watched this situation escalate, time was of the essence. It was now the fall of 1955. Before the rainy season began, the missionaries came up with a plan. Through some creativity and some skilled flying, they invented a way to extend a rope out of the back of the airplane with a bucket attached to the end. And they would put gifts in that bucket. Then they'd bank the plane in a tight circle around an area, continuing to let the line out until the bucket actually touched the ground and would stay still long enough for the items to be retrieved from the bucket. They used this method to drop gifts down into the center of one of the Aka villages. And they did this several times. The Aka people were tentative at first, approaching that bucket, unsure what to expect. But they got to the point where they were looking forward to these airdrops. And one day, after one of the missions, they pulled the, back, the bucket up to find that the Aka people had put gifts in the bucket back for the missionaries. Now it was time. They planned the next phase of their mission. The Kurare River ran through the middle of Aka territory, and Nate had spotted a place along a riverbank with a stretch of land long enough to land an airplane. So the missionaries planned, they fasted, they prayed for the right moment to attempt face-to-face -face contact with the Aka, the savages. On January 3rd, 1956, after several trips to bring equipment and supplies, the men set up camp on that small stretch of land by the river. After the last delivery, Nate flew over the Aka settlement and using a loudspeaker and some phrases he had learned in the Aka language, he invited them to meet them down at the river. They had more gifts to give them if, if the Aka people decided to visit, including some homemade peanut butter sandwiches. Imagine the anticipation as the men waited there. Maybe a little nervous, maybe a little giddiness. None of them really knew what to expect. And after waiting for several days there at that campsite, on January 6th, the first Aka visitors arrived. It was one young man and two women. They didn't seem hostile or threatening. The interaction was cordial as they were able to communicate through a few Aka phrases they had learned, but mostly just through acting things out. And the man, 
motioned to Nate that he wanted to take a trip in the yellow bee. It's the name that they had given for the airplane that they had seen flying around. So Nate obliged, and the two made a trip around the area, even flying over the man's home village. They had did it. They, they finally made peaceful contact with this primitive tribe, the people that God had placed on their hearts, living out the mission Jesus had given them. They started to see some results from all this risk they had taken. They radioed a good report back to their wives at headquarters approximately 50 miles away. And the following day, more of the Aka people were planning to visit these strange men in the would-be. But on their way from the village down to the river, they met up with two of the three that had met the men. And fearing what the tribe would say, they lied in order to avoid suspicion. Rather than telling the truth about the, the friendly interaction, the peanut butter sandwiches, the airplane ride, they told the others that the men were hostile towards them. So rather than continuing down to the river, they all returned back to their village to decide what to do next. The elders of the vi village met. And fearing what these foreign men were up to, they couldn't be trusted. Suspicious of their intentions, they planned to ambush and kill these foreigners. They decided to send warriors back to the river the next day to attack. So the next day as the men prepared, excited, hoping for another visit from the Aka tribe, one by one, the warriors stepped out into the clearing where they had been camped. This is the situation those five men far away from home found themselves in. These men had everything going for them. They could have been living the good life, climbing the corporate ladder, rubbing elbows with the best of society, and yet here they were, deep in the Amazon rainforest, their lives being threatened by the very people they were attempting to show God's love to. What was it about these men? Like I said earlier, what would drive five men to a situation like this, to people so lost, people so unlike them? These men believed something very important. This is what I want you to write in your notes. This is what these men believed. They believed the influence of the gospel is powerful enough to change any heart. Yes, even the heart of a ruthless tribal warrior. They believe this to their core, even being willing to risk their lives for this belief. They embraced Jesus' words. They understood that this, this world, this life was not about them. Think about that statement that Jesus made again in Matthew 10. He said, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. And I have to admit, sometimes I wish I could soften these words, make them sound more comfortable, more doable. But there's no way around what Jesus said. Imagine as Jesus would talk to the crowds, if there was this imaginary meter that would hang over their heads. And this meter showed whether the crowd was there just because it was their favorite pastime or if the crowd was there because they were fully surrendered to following Jesus. Again, huge crowds were there. And surely they were there enjoying the teaching, the miracles, the healing, maybe even the camaraderie. Maybe they were there to see if they could get in on some of the free loaves and fish. Hey, Eli! Check out that kid down there with the, with the David and Goliath lunchbox. 
Those two guys, they just walked over, took his lunch away. They gave it to that guy. Now he's ripping it up and passing it out by the handfuls. See if you can go down there and grab us some of that. And by the way, give me some uh, extra fish. My wife's got me on that ketogenic diet. No, no lows for this guy. The people were there for all sorts of different reasons. You could see why the crowds were gathering. But then as he often did, Jesus would say some hard things. He'd give a realistic view of what following him really meant. And some of the crowd would disperse. And quickly you'd start to see the difference between those who were following Jesus because it was their favorite pastime and those who were fully surrendered to Jesus. Yeah, many loved Jesus. They wanted to hear him speak. They made him a part of their life. But they weren't really willing to go beyond that. Imagine if that same imaginary meter was hanging over our heads. We like the Arby's hat in the commercial. And at one end of that, that meter showed that Jesus was, for you, following Jesus was just your favorite pastime. Nothing much more than that. And at that end of the meter, uh, sure, you've, you've placed your faith in Jesus. You're a Christian. You're a child of God. But throughout the week, you're, you're, you're busy with work, kids, favorite television shows, life in general, building your own little kingdom. And you, you might say, well, well yeah, I, uh, I like Jesus. I'm all in. I come to church. I serve. I sing the worship songs. I know some of the words and improvise a little bit here and there. We hear you. You might say, but let's not get crazy. I got a good job. I got a good family. I got things to do. And then we give up our evenings and our, our weekends and our time and our commitment to temporary things. Instead of leading our lives and leading our family to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And we end up teaching another generation how to slide Jesus off to the side as maybe just a favorite pastime instead. And add on to busy life. Favorite weekend experience. But if that's one side of the meter, what does full surrender mean? What does it mean when, when someone starts to really take Jesus' words to heart? To lose this life, to give up all for the sake of God and his kingdom. And following Jesus becomes the full focus of your life. The reason you exist, why you're here. What would this meter show about you? When you truly follow Jesus, there's a moment when you cross over from one side to the other. Can you remember a moment like that in your own life? I can remember it in mine. I don't I didn't recognize it at the time, but looking back on the season, I can identify it. Julie and I were, were new parents. Marriage and family was great. I was working a great job, selling log homes. I, I loved it. Money was good. Building a family was good. Life was good. We were serving as volunteers in our local church every opportunity we had, and we loved that too. But as we continued to grow spiritually, at some point in that season, we, we crossed over the line, that midpoint. We began to see our lives more in terms of of God's kingdom instead of our own. Our passions were becoming about serving God and, and bringing him glory and less and less about the things we were pursuing, building our own kingdom. And it's important to notice that, that Jesus wasn't saying turn your back on your family, your kids, your parents, your relatives, your loved ones. No, he gives clear instructions on loving them well. But he's saying that cannot supersede your commitment to him. It's important to point out that this season for, for both Julie and I was not, 
when we sense God calling us into full-time ministry, it was long before that. I'm not saying that, that to, to fully surrender means that you have to be a pastor or missionary. No, not at all. I'm just simply giving you an example of what crossing that line looks like. And to be honest with you, I'm not a shining example of perfection in this. I still struggle with this. If you ask my wife or ask my kids, they'll tell you. I've messed this up a ton over the years. Still do. But what is that line between the two? Where does a person cross from following Jesus just being a favorite pastime to being fully surrendered? I believe this is the moment when you you shift from God being who you know to God being who you serve. From trying to fit a little bit more Jesus into my life to Jesus has my whole life. It belongs to him. From being a, a casual Christian consumer of church to being an influencer for God's kingdom. From, I'm gonna make the most of myself, gonna make the most of my life to I'm gonna take up my cross and follow Jesus wholeheartedly wherever that leads. I think that's the line between the two. And I need to be clear, this is not about doing more or being more or giving more or serving more or leading more or anything more. It's simply about full surrender, laying everything down, offering your life completely to God, his will, his plans. And if full surrender means God is gonna ask more from you, then so be it. But I don't want you to mishear me. God is simply asking for you to fully surrender to him, to his will. And what that looks like in all of us is gonna be different. What he calls each of us to might be wildly different. What he leads each of us through might be wildly different. What he asks from us from might be different for each one of us sitting here. What he puts us through might be different. What he allows in our lives might be different. But the common, common denominator between those who live on this side of the line and those who fully surrender is simply that they're living for God, holding nothing back, his kingdom above all else. I want you to listen to some of the words of the men who were serving as missionaries there to the Aka Indians. Nate Saint, the pilot, said this, when life's flight is over and we unload our cargo at the other end, the fellow who got rid of the unnecessary weight will have the most valuable cargo to present to the Lord. And his friend Jim Elliott said this, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. God might be calling some of us to serve with an airplane in the Amazon jungle. He might be calling others of us to serve him right now at the job you're at with a computer or a stethoscope or a hammer or a realtor license. He might be calling all of us to take that little invite card that sits on the chair next to you, to walk across the street to your neighbor, to take it to work and invite someone to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But no matter where he does it or how he does it, Jesus calls us to take up your cross and follow him even if it costs you everything. Think about those words for a minute. Jesus calls all of us to take up our cross and follow him, even if it costs you everything. 
January 8th, 1956, the wives back at headquarters waited anxiously for their daily report from the men. But the radio was silent. Evening comes and goes with no check-in. The wives grow concerned, but they're still hopeful. But then night passes. There's no word from the men. January 9th, another plane is dispatched to fly over the area where the men were last known to be. The plane is sighted, but it's been stripped of its fabric and the supplies inside are strewn around the area. The U.S. Air Force immediately sends out a search crew and over the next few days, all five bodies are found and confirmed dead, speared to death and thrown into the river. As it would be discovered by first-hand accounts and footage from a camera the men were filming with, the Aka warriors mercilessly killed all five men, completely disregarding their friendly gestures, the gifts, ignoring their pleas for mercy. And then after they slaughtered the men, they immediately returned to their own village and expecting a revenge attack, burned their own village to the ground and fled into the jungle. Why? What a waste. Five men, five families, all with bright futures, a bright scholar, a future lawyer, a talented pilot, all passionate followers of, of Jesus with a heart full of love for those who've never heard the, the good news, but now gone. Is, is that what the gospel is all about? Is that what following Jesus is all about? Is that what Jesus really meant when he said, and if you don't carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple? But remember, Jesus also said, greater love has no man than a man who would lay down his life for his friends. These were five men who saw beyond the temporary pursuits of life and they were completely living for the mission that God had called them to, but, but now savagely executed. In Philippians chapter three, we, we read some of the words of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a man who lived the, the same kind of passion. And God wrote through him in these words. He's, he's giving this long list of things that at one point in life, he had been pursuing social status and religious status and family heritage, even talking about how, how good of a guy he was as he obeyed the, the rules. But yet then in verse seven, he says this, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Can you hear the passion in his voice? The same passion those five men had? Now Paul goes on to explain what the gospel is. He says, for his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Don't miss that. I become righteous through faith in Christ, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. That's what the gospel is all about. It's placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. He split the heavens wide open. And his humble arrival as a baby 
casting aside his position. And power is God's own son. And then he taught and he led in his years here on earth, but then willingly allowed himself to be arrested, put on trial, and then carry that wooden cross, that execution device through the town, up a hill, where he would be executed willingly. Why? His sinless life was given as a sacrifice for the sins that you and I commit. That lustful thing you were looking at on your phone last night, he died for that. Those lies you tell, he died for that. The thing you stole, he, he died for that. Those sins that you think you're hiding, he died for that. The anger you harbor, the hate that you have, he died for that. The pride that you cover yourself with, he died for that. He gave up his life so that you and I could be forgiven and set free. And then to prove his power over sin and death and eternal punishment in hell. He walked out of the grave fully alive, fully healed, and still fully God. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Romans 3.22 says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. That's hope, that's healing, that's forgiveness, that's freedom. That's the gospel, that's the good news. That's what's offered to all of us. Again, the gospel's powerful enough to change any heart, even mine, even yours. And it grips my heart that there might be some who are sitting here who've never embraced this good news. Maybe you've heard it again and again and again, but you've never acted on it. And I, might, I know it might sound like a, an odd time to ask you in light of this sad story in Ecuador, but have you ever embraced this good news on your own? This message is powerful enough to send five men deep into the Amazon jungle because men needed to hear it, and yet it's the same good news that sits here for you and I. To repent, to turn from sin, and to turn to the Savior for forgiveness and freedom, to receive his salvation and follow him. One day be with him forever in heaven. It's something that you can settle right now, today. You can pray that through right where you're sitting right now. You can come up and talk with someone at the end about this. You can write it on your Connect card that this is something you settled today or something that you want to talk with someone about. Either way, don't miss this. These five men gave up their lives in an effort to reach those who'd never heard the good news about Jesus. But again, it seems like such a waste. All that talent, all that potential, all that skill thrown away in this failed effort. That left five women, five families without the husband or a dad, or a brother, or a son. To me, it sounds like a tragic story, or tragic end to a sad story. But that's not the kind of story that our God writes. There was only the miraculous beginning of something so much greater. You see, as news of this tragedy spread around the world, rather than having a negative impact on world missions, it actually had the opposite effect. It served as an inspiration for many more to surrender their lives 
to mission work all around the world. And shortly after the death of these five men, one of the wives, Elizabeth Elliot, and Nate Saint's sister, Rachel, felt God calling them to continue the effort. They had also studied the Aka language. And they had been meeting with an Aka woman who had escaped the tribe years earlier. This woman named Dayuma was related to some of the, the tribe that had made the initial contact with the missionaries. So Elizabeth, Rachel, and Dayuma took the unimaginable risk of reaching back out to the tribe. And surprisingly, they were met with a much different response. They continued regular contact with the Aka people, eventually helping them see God's plan of salvation. That's the influence of the gospel. Eventually, Elizabeth and Rachel moved to, to live among the Aka people right there in their village. And little by little, the God carvings, it's a term the Aka people called the Bible, was translated into their language. And one by one, the Aka people began to believe the good news of the gospel and surrender their lives to Jesus, become God followers is what they called it. That's the influence of the gospel. But what about those savage warriors? What about those, those ones from the tribe who ambushed the five men by the riverside, the ones who mercilessly speared them to death and threw them in the river? Well, Minkai, one of the killers, he's the one who speared Nate Saint, the pilot, to death. Over time, he too surrendered to Jesus and eventually became a God follower, continuing on to become one of the elders of their church there in that village. Dayui, also one of the warriors there that day, became, became a church elder. That's the influence of the gospel. A little over a year later, Nate Saint's boy, Steve, was now about eight or nine years old. He joined his Aunt Rachel and Elizabeth, living there among the Aka people. Listen to what he would say about that very moment. He, he says, I saw them as being the most special people in the whole world. I mean, why else would my dad have been willing to die for them? My mom to go on praying for them and my aunt risk her life for them. The day came when Steve finally met Min Kai, the man responsible for the death of his father. You see, in the Aka culture, it would have been Steve's right, even Steve's responsibility to avenge the death of his father. That's the way the Aka people had lived for centuries. But instead, something amazing happened. Minkai noticed that this young boy now living with them in their village had no skills for jungle living. So he went to Steve's Aunt Rachel, and in his own language, he said to her, what's wrong with Steve? He doesn't know how to make poison for his darts. He doesn't know how to make darts. He doesn't know how to use a blowgun. He can't track animals. He doesn't know anything. Who's going to teach him how to live? So Rachel asked Minkai, who he thought would be the right man to step in to teach his, her nephew since Minkai had killed his father. Minkai went away without an answer. But later, came back to Rachel and said that he wanted to be the one to teach him. That is the influence of the gospel. A few years later, Steve and his sister, now teenagers, decided to get baptized so they went to their Aunt Rachel, and she told them each to choose some men who had been a spiritual impact on their life to baptize them. 
They both chose some of the very men who killed their father and then were baptized in the same river where their father was killed. That is the influence of the gospel. You see, the influence of the gospel is powerful enough to change an entire community. Eventually, that village became a base of operations to share the gospel through the entire region. Those five men were influencers in life and even now then in death. Over the years, Steve and Minkai grew closer and closer, Steve eventually even calling him grandfather. The two of them remained friends for life, eventually traveling and speaking together throughout the world. And Minkai would say, looking back on those dark days, we acted badly until they brought us God's carvings. Now we walk his trail. That, my friends, is the influence of the gospel. Just a few years ago, April of 2020, Minkai Minkai passed away. And that grips my heart because I imagine I imagine the reunion of these men the one that killed them, but now no hatred, no anger, only love as these men. All sons of the same heavenly father reunited in the presence of Jesus. That's the influence of the gospel. It's powerful enough to not just change a community in Ecuador. That same gospel is powerful enough to change the world. So here you and I are this morning talking about the same gospel, the same good news about Jesus. And yes, it's powerful enough to inspire five men, five families to give up everything so that just some could hear this good news. And yet I think about all the, the things that we waste our lives on. The tiny squabbles we get tied up in, the hidden sins that we tangle with, the worthless things we pursue, the the petty things that we complain about. Even within the church, we find things to complain about. And instead of the church becoming our headquarters, our mission that Jesus called us to together, we find petty things about our pastor or our church to nitpick, complain about, I don't like this or that. I'm not getting what I want here. I don't like that song. I don't like that message series. Good grief. None of that matters. What matters is the mission that Jesus has called us to. The good news of the gospel that can change a community, that can change the world. 
And yet we live our lives just chasing after shiny little things that we think is going to make us a little bit happier, a little bit more comfortable. And following Jesus just becomes the favorite pastime. You know, that, that kind of thinking seems a little petty, seems a little self-centered in light of what Jesus called us to. We're surrounded by a community, a world that needs hope desperately. It needs the good news of the gospel. That's what really matters. That's why you and I are here. Jim Elliott, one of the five men killed that day, he kept a journal. And he wrote a statement long ago that has become somewhat famous. Maybe you've seen it on a poster or a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. It says this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Those are some powerful words. But for me, knowing that this man lived them with purpose and with passion to the very end, it hits a little bit deeper in my own heart. So don't miss this. This is the one thing I wanted you to hear today. It's that the influence of the gospel is powerful enough to ignite your life with eternal passion and purpose. If there's one thing I want you to take from this message, it's this very thought. It's a thought that's been growing in my heart and ringing in my heart over the last several months, long before knowing I was going to speak today. And when they asked me to fill in this weekend, I knew exactly what God wanted to say because he'd already been speaking it to me for months and months now. Jesus' words wake me up to the reality of what he's called us to. And seeing how this men, these men lived it out inspires me. It helps me to loosen my grip on this world. It narrows my focus on eternity. And I believe right here is a room full of people with that same potential. How about you? Do you want that same purpose and passion that Jesus called his followers to? If that's the case, then let's go. Let's do it. Today it's time to move from Jesus just being a favorite pastime to being fully surrendered. To take up your cross and follow him. Yes, it is so worth it. Even if it costs you everything. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I don't know who needed to hear this message today, but I have to believe that God's been speaking the same thing to many of you over the last several months. And today was just a confirmation of what God has already been saying to you, that it's time to step across that line, to move from just following Jesus as a pastime, to being fully surrendered to him. And if that is you, then don't leave this room this morning without settling that issue. Maybe you need to come up and pray with someone at the end. Maybe you just need to sit in your seat a little bit longer when everybody leaves and pray that through with your Heavenly Father. Surrender whatever that is that's been holding you back. But don't leave this room without that. Or maybe this morning, you've realized that you're one of those who's, you've heard the gospel before, but you've never surrendered to Jesus Christ. You've heard about his forgiveness. You've heard about his love, and yet you've never turned 
from your own way of doing life. Turn from your own sins and turn to him and ask for forgiveness. You can do that right now as you sit there. You can pray, you can call out to him. Admit that you're a sinner, that you believe in Jesus as a savior and you're putting your faith in him. Ask him for forgiveness. Tell him you're gonna follow him. That is salvation, that is the gospel. And you can do that right now. If you're not sure, you can still come to talk to someone at the end, pray with them up front. You can mark it on your Connect card that that's something you settled today or something that you'd like to talk with someone about. But that is the most important decision you'll ever make. Don't walk away from this moment without embracing the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, continue to speak to my heart. Continue to speak to the hearts of everyone here. Show us more of yourself. Lead us to the next step in our own lives. We'll give you the glory for it all. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.